Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JV3. And I am on Christmas slash holiday break. And it feels good to be slowing things down, at least with there not being any work in the background. I'm able to do things that I enjoy, like, you know, watching movies and spending time with family. And I just finished watching the Juice World documentary, and it was really really good and as someone who's listened to juice world for quite some time i always knew about his struggles with addiction and just the things that he talked about in his songs and it it really resonated i mean i think it was very clear that his fans felt so connected because of the vulnerability that he shared and it it's painful as an artist as a creative that the same thing that fuels you also fuels your addictions. And this episode is not about Juice World, obviously, but we do talk about this notion of addiction and we talk about it in the context of the LGBTQ community. And so just a few quick facts based on the things that I've learned. Approximately 4.5% of the US identifies as LGBT. And that is nearly 15 million people. Of them, one third experience some form of mental illness. And that's 60% more than heterosexuals. And so you you have to ask yourself why. And before anyone listens and they're like, oh, that if you're, you're gay, you're just more likely to use alcohol. Well, yes, that's true. But there's also the consideration of why that is the case. And so we have to wonder why transgender people attempt suicide nine times more than the entire population or why LGBTQ adults are 56% more likely to develop an alcohol use disorder. And none of that can be traced back to their gender identity or to their sexual orientation. So it has to be something greater than that. And so this week, I have the honor of introducing you all to Dr. Carl Hyshaw who was a classmate at the University of Southern California, who has been doing work with the LGBTQ community for quite some time now. And he runs the Ahmad Institute, which is arming minorities against addiction and disease. And I'm just so excited to introduce you to the man. He's been a great colleague, someone that I've learned a lot from. And so without further talking from me, we'd love to introduce you to Dr. Highshaw. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Bell. I thank you for having me here. Um, I am, again, I'm Carl Hyshaw. I currently call Los Angeles, California home, though I originally came from the South and the Midwest. Uh, I spent most of my childhood about uh, 90 miles west of Chicago in Rockford, Illinois, but I was born in a small town in Southern Arkansas. And so in the early 1970s, uh, as a part of that late great black migration north, uh, my parents moved us uh, for better opportunity and a better way of life. So, um, but I've been here in California now for almost 23 years. Tell us a little bit about your educational background. What were your, your focus in school? So yeah, I, I always say that my educational background really started with the military. I, right out of high school, I joined the Illinois Army National Guard. Um, that was during the time of the first Gulf War. It was uh, uh, the first Bush and the first Iraq War. 
And um, after that, or during that process, I ended up going to Western Illinois University where I pursued um, a bachelor's of science in psychology and I double minored in African-American studies and sociology. And right after undergrad, I uh, decided to, to move to St. Louis to go to uh, Washington University at, to the School of Social Work. Um, and so that's been many, many, many moon, moons ago. And um, right after I completed my graduate degree in social work, I moved here to California uh, to kind of pursue life and um, have had a, a long career um, in community-based work and just life experiences. And then recently I decided to uh, go back and further my education with my doctorate of social work at uh, the University of Southern California um, and I've uh, really focused on um, really honing in what I've been doing um, over the last uh, uh, 23 plus years of my life um, uh, in Los Angeles. Could you speak to what brought you to the social work field or social work profession? You know, it, it's probably mostly my mentor. Uh, and I would be remiss if I did not mention his name. Dwight Knuckles, uh, may he rest in peace. But um, when I was an undergraduate student, uh, this very gregarious black social worker um, in, uh, powered me uh, to find myself and to step into who I was and thought that I needed to pursue the field of social work. And I decided to uh, take him up um, on his advice, which is the reason I moved to St. Louis, uh, which is where he lived. Uh, to uh, pursue a, a degree in the, in the helping profession. And I really wanted to really pursue social work in a way that really allowed me to focus on um, community and peer-based services. And so it's about, in, in my view, us helping us. At, at, the, at the time, my mentor, um, then uh, Dwight Knuckles, uh, worked for an organization that was then called Blacks Assisting Blacks Against AIDS, ABABA. I don't think that organization really exists anymore. And, um, but I was just so in awe of everything that Dwight did as a case manager uh, within Blacks Assisting Blacks Against AIDS and, and his uh, priority focus on a population in which I identified with so much um, was inspiring to me um, and it motivated me. And I'll be quite honest, I don't even really think it I realized how big of an influence Dwight and his, and his life experience influenced me and what I do today and the organization that I eventually founded here in Los Angeles, which has a name that's not too far uh, apart from um, Baba. I started thinking about that when you said it. I was like, hey, the organization that you run now, it doesn't sound too different, but no, that's, right. that's great, right? Like it's a part of legacy living on. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, so, you know, as I, as I recently uh, completed this doctorate of social work, I really give kudos to uh, Dwight Knuckles, uh, who was uh, quite a bit older than me, who saw something in me and, and saw um, that this would be a good fit for me and pushed me. And so D Dwight, he actually passed away before I finished that master's program in St. Louis. And so he didn't get a chance to see me walk that stage. And um, so I envisioned that he was with me uh, all those years ago. 
uh, as I uh, culminated and I, I envision and imagine that he was with me uh, uh, in this most recent endeavor. So um, I, I always have to say, I must speak the name of Dwight. Hey, I'm, I'm grateful for him. Because who knows, we may have never even crossed paths had you not taken that decision, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So Dr. Hyshaw, because you know, you gotta say, you gotta get used to hearing it. Um, can you describe for us kind of the relationship between the LGBTQ community and addiction, right? And I don't wanna frame this from like a deficit model, but the way that we often talk about it or see it in the literature is that there, there's a connection. And so could you unpack that for us? Yeah, so, you know, I, I'm always trying to be very uh, careful of, of not going down this, this pathology line of um, LGBT people people and addiction um, as something um, that's, that is especially unique. Um, the reality is Black LGBTQ people or LGBTQ people in general have uh, many of the same um, issues when it comes to addiction and substance use disorder, but things are different when it comes to treatment and support for this community. Um, I'm one of those persons who believes that uh, when people suffer from addiction uh, or as well as other mental health uh, issues, that when they are able to access supportive services that embraces them for who they are and all of who they are in a way that is both culturally affirming as well as affirming of who they are with regards to their sexual identity, uh, uh, the, the sexual orientation, gender identity, um, uh, it, it's important that, uh, that people are able to access services in a way that allows them to be seen for who they are. And I think that's really where there is a huge gaping hole, especially with regards to black and brown LGBTQ people. I think uh, within the, the, the support space uh, of, of addiction, you'll find a whole host of peer-based supportive services uh, that really do um, uh, cater to the masses, but that also addresses some culturally relevant kinds of points of view from that peer-to-peer -peer perspective. But it's not so much the case uh, in a more dramatic, uh, 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 dramatic case for those who kind of live at that intersection of Black and Brown and LGBTQ as well. So uh, my hope it, uh, is that uh, I bring uh, more awareness to what our community issues are and our needs are to be of a support from a peer-to-peer -peer perspective, if you will. Addiction across the board affects uh, every community um, and uh, LGBTQ people are, are not necessarily affected in any higher disproportionate rate um, with addiction, but nevertheless, they are, uh, uh, they are not supported at a proportionate rate uh, for what is needed. So in that same vein, and I think this goes back to like dominant narrative, and folks tend to put a microscope to this particular population and mental health, in suicide death, in addiction. What are some of the disparities that you've observed? I think this is coming from more like my public health lens when it comes to the, having these conversations. Well, so, you know, Black LGBTQ or LGBTQ people in general face, you know, a whole set of challenges um, in terms of uh, becoming homeless 
you know, uh, as well as challenges when they are trying to avoid being homeless. Um, that affects uh, substance use. That affects the way in which people uh, use. LGBTQ people face social stigma and discrimination or really rejection by, by family. All of that adds to kind of physical and mental um, step strains and challenges that, that everyone has to, to, to face. But for LGBTQ people especially, um, it, it, it becomes a, a different level of barrier. Um, you know, frequently LGBTQ people have a difficulty finding, you know, they, 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 they suffer in finding shelters that accept them. Um, they uh, find difficulty in finding, again, uh, uh, support systems that are on par with their heterosexual peers. Um, and transgender people, especially, especially Black transgender women, um, are especially uh, at a deficit with regards to support, often um, turned away from systems of support, often ridiculed um, and stigmatized in a way that creates um, further barriers and, and further challenges that would challenge one's resolve to, uh, to, to be more healthy. So it's, it's 2021. We are still in a place where people are encountering barriers to finding help and treatment. Like I'm, I'm trying to understand why hasn't this gotten easier? Like, you know, we've got Affordable Care Act. We've got um, various pilot projects where there's expansion of Medicaid, there's, you know, all the things that typically you would assume would make things easier. Why not? You know, my perspective is that, uh, and my voice comes from the Black LGBTQ intersection space specifically. And, and uh, I, I think, uh, I feel as if that there is a complete um, devoid of significant community engagement support uh, th that, that embraces community. I think uh, uh, the field's uh, desire to be so clinical in nature, clinical uh, and cold and sterile in the way in which we deal with people is a hindrance. I think, uh, uh, culturally appropriate, uh, community grounded approaches that, it, that incorporate the lived experience of people on the ground at, it, within the workforce creates better opportunities and better support systems, especially for um, black and brown LGBTQ people. And so for me, um, it, 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 it's about kind of a sense of community theory, if you will. We are all stronger and better together and we're working together better. Um, but when we medicalize systems of support uh, across the board, don't get me wrong, the clinical piece is very, very important. But I think community engagement is especially important from this non-clinical peer engagement support mechanisms that I don't think are in um, enough supply across the United States of America. I think in, in certain segments of the population, especially certain kind of metro areas like LA, things are kind of come on board. I'm sure Detroit, New York, DC. Um, but it, it, for me, it, it's really about the lack of comprehensive community-based engagement. And now you're, you're speaking my language, right? You know, being a macro social worker, 
community engagement is like my first love. Like how do we create intentional pathways to give feedback to the system so that we can improve it? And you, right. you hit the nail on the head. It's by talking to the people impacted by the problem. And I still kind of roll my eyes because like, have we not figured this out yet? Like how many more reports do we need to put out? Like talk to the people, talk to yeah. the people. I'm not so certain that, you know, some of our leading professionals have figured that out. You know, you, you think about the way in which programs and support systems are designed, and they're often designed within the bubble, within the professional space, right? You know, with, with, within the space of individuals who may have matriculated through a, 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 particular, a particular academic program. And I always say lived experience is just as valuable as academic experience when it comes to dealing with people on the community level. Um, so one can't go without the other. And so as academia and the, you know, the powers that be put together the, uh, design structures uh, for community, um, all too often they're doing it, they're doing it removed from community and bringing some sort of a um, matrix or some sort of a program into community to see if it works. Well, no, community can, can work together and, and, and solve its own problems. I remember um, once upon a time doing some technical assistance for this grant and I think they wanted to like literally hurt me <laughs> because I talked about this idea of community engagement as the pathway to sustainability because you know you give somebody a grant they go out and do the work the grant dries up the organization moves on but if you actually equip the community with the tools and the assets and they're a part of the process from beginning to end there's a greater likelihood that this thing will live on beyond whoever's at the helm of some organization or whoever's writing these grants and absolutely like i said i, I just don't get it <laughs> like why don't every why doesn't everyone get this Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's baffling to me. So the last question I want to ask really around kind of this, I don't want to call it a problem, but this, this understanding is something's got to be holding these inequities in place. And so when we think about the difference in treatment, the difference in social stigma, what are some of the, the root causes that carry this inequity beyond his desired life? I got an answer, systematic racism. It is that simple. I, the, the system is designed uh, in a way that does not, uh, and again, I'm, I'm speaking particularly from the black LGBTQ uh, point of view, that uh, uh, my perspective is that the system is, is, is designed in a way that does not value or support um, uh, Black LGBTQ voices. It, it just does not. And the way in which uh, the um, system and uh, uh, industrial complex, if you will, is designed for uh, funding of programs um, and uh, who gets funded to do the work to, prior to, to prioritize communities, um, uh, there's a problem. And I always say, uh, so the work uh, at, of, of the organization that I work with, we're not going into a community to solve a problem. We are the community. We're here. We're doing the work, so we're not going into a place. And I think where, 
far too often there are, um, we've gotten into the business of social services and uh, um, nonprofit conglomerates, if you will, um, being funded uh, well intended as they may to do the work uh, that they are not necessarily prepared to do in a culturally appropriate way that will be um, significant for uh, the population that needs them most. You know, I, I always say language often matters. And so, so many times these organizations and these entities say, well, we're gonna target that population. And I always say, well, why don't we prioritize the population? Who should be the priority? And how can that priority population influence the work of itself? Uh, and uh, until we really start changing uh, the way in which um, funding uh, uh, gets trickled down to community, I think we will forever be uh, behind a, uh, a, a, a boulder. I think uh, there are systems in place that require certain application requirements that community-based nonprofit organizations who are on the ground uh, sometimes can't meet the threshold or, the, or, or they can't get their foot in the door because they haven't had the contract. The contract is what qualifies them. The previous contract qualifies them to do the work and that's problematic. I think, um, uh, you know, we need to shake up the way in which, uh, uh, you know, uh, the federal as well as local government fund uh, fund the work that happens within the community. I'd also say shake up what the, the way in which our uh, community-based foundations fund the work. You know, all all too often organizations can't access resources to do the work uh, uh, because they may need a um, an invitation from the foundation in order to submit an application. Um, and they can't submit an application because they don't have the relationships. They're not a part of the good old boy club. That's all problematic and it keeps uh, community-based organization and community-based engagement efforts from being brought to scale on a more significant level. And I hate to come off as, you know, and folks be like, yeah, I've got that black friend or, you know, I've watched X TV show. Yeah. But in watching polls this season, right? The way that they've done Pray Tell's character, uh, Billy Porter, in addressing substance use, but they don't shy away from the fact that this man is drinking to cope. This man is drinking because he's losing his friends. This man is drinking because he's positive. This man is drinking. Like, I think that's often what's missing from many of these conversations is the fact that there's something situational that is causing the behavior, right? Like. I feel like I have to cope for some reason. I did an episode earlier with um, Autumn Asher Black Deer, who's a Native American. And she mentioned, like, that's the part that they don't tell you. Like, they just want you to think that all indigenous peoples are just alcoholics. Yes. You know? They're responding to trauma, to years of trauma. What do you expect? And I think that's something that needs to be highlighted more often. And it could even be addressed like in the funding too. Like, being able to not just target this one particular group, but understanding like there's a history that this community has experienced that we need to also unravel. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, just this morning, it was running through my head about, you know, my headquarters is based in 
Los Angeles in the community of Watts. Um, and you may have heard of Watts from the historic 1965 Watts riots or the Watts Rebellion. Um, but you may not have heard of Marquette Fry. Well, if you think of Marquette Fry the same way as you, Marquette Fry is to the 1965 riots what um, uh, Rodney King was uh, to the 1992 LA riots. Marquette Fry was a young man. He, he was then 21 years old, had been pulled over by the police. The police basically brutalized him and his family. Long story. Um, uh, but the city uh, got really upset and, and the city burned from that police interaction. Uh, uh, when Marquette Fry, uh, years later, uh, was about 35 years old, he suddenly died of pneumonia. That was about 1986. Um, 1986 died of pneumonia. And while I'm not necessarily equating uh, Marquette Fry as someone who died uh, of complications of, of AIDS, but when I think of 1986 and pneumonia in LA and what was happening um, and um, the purported life that Marquette Fry had, I say nothing much changed between 1965 uh, and then into 1980s when Marquette Fry passed away of pneumonia when AIDS was coming onto the scene. Um, and what sort of supports were there uh, to help that young Marquette Fry when he was 21 years old, when he was engaged in this traumatic police interaction experience. And then, then you push forward to Rodney King uh, who had a substance use problem. And again, Marquette Fry ended up having a substance use uh, disorder problem over the course of his lifetime as he grew into adulthood. Same thing with Rodney King. Uh, he suffered from uh, substance use disorder. And years later, how did uh, Rodney King pass away? Uh, he drowned in a pool related to uh, his substance use. What sort of supports and system were in place for the trauma and the experiences that both Marquette Fry had, as well as Rodney King had, both who died tragically, who suffered from substance use disorder, who were kind of the face of community, um, and how, were, how did we respond? I think a complete failure. And case in point, I would dare say, there are many other Marquette Fries and Rodney Kings who have come along since then, who haven't been murdered, but who have been traumatized uh, by police or community engagement and have been put into these, um, uh, a, a, a way of life that has not supported them and allowed them to heal and to come into themselves as uh, individuals with us. Uh, a strong sense of self and ability to cope. Um, they didn't get the support that they needed. Um, and I would say in large part, they did get the support that they needed because the systems weren't there um, uh, to support them in a, in a community engagement, more grassroots way that would be meaningful. The cold, sterile systems of support, in my view, don't work on a significant level for the community and in the way in which we need them to work. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, right? So we've identified very clearly the problem. Let's insert Ahmad. Tell us more about it. How did it come to be? What is its overall goal? 
so uh, the Ahmad Institute um, is an organization that I founded, and I initially uh, uh, came up with the with the name Ahmad because I wanted a culturally relevant sounding name, and in Swahili, um, it uh, meant support. Um, and then after I kind of put it on paper, I realized, oh, I could, I could use this acronym as I think about community, and it can be an acronym for Arming Minorities Against Addiction and Disease. Um, it would be years later that I realized how close and similar that Ahmad acronym uh, was to BABA, Blacks Assisting Blacks Against um, AIDS, who worked with um, primarily Black gay men who had been formerly incarcerated, who had, uh, who were homeless, uh, who was struggling with substance use disorder, who was struggling with mental health, all of those things uh, that my mentor, then Dwight Knuckles, told me was important um, uh, in terms of working with our people, my people. And so uh, that's how Ahmad came to be. And over time, I really developed it to be this community engagement social work agency that uh, I, I, I use the word prioritize. It unapologetically prioritizes the delivery of culturally relevant, relevant integrated peer-based essential support services for those at the intersection of Black and LGBTQ plus identity. And um, of course, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer questioning, or non-binary or non uh, conforming individuals that are really disproportionately impacted as a result of systemic inequities. So the work that we're doing at, uh, at Ahmad has uh, transitioned, if you will, as we've kind of grown. We started with a capacity building grant that was about uh, a peer-based capacity uh, uh, infrastructure that I wanted to create and it was supported by SAMHSA several years ago. And even though that grant has has expired, it was a three-year grant that expired. The organization has uh, been solidified. We now have a current staff of 30 employees and includes housing support specialists, community health uh, workers, licensed and uh, registered mental health therapists, recovery support specialists, um, uh, HIV testing counselors and navigators and uh, community engagement coordinators and of course, administrative staff. and. We, again, we work in Los Angeles. Uh, our headquarters space is uh, in the Watts Civic Center. I'm not too far uh, from uh, where that Watts Rebellion was sparked by uh, the life of uh, Marquette Fry in 1965. And we also uh, opened an office just prior to the COVID-19 pandemic here in the city of Inglewood, um, right along the kind of historic Crenshaw uh, uh, corridor, if you will. Um, so we operate uh, from programmatic spaces that are intentionally placed within our community where Black and Brown folks uh, uh, live. Uh, we also operate a couple of transitional living homes. We call one um, Big Mama's House of Resiliency, as well as the Mike Gibson House that prioritizes those with who've been formerly incarcerated. And they're, they're also uh, purposely located um, in the King Estates neighborhood as well as the uh, historic um, uh, uh, South Central neighborhood. And I always say that location matters. Um, we are intentional, we are unapologetic about who we are and where we provide our services because uh, we don't want people to have to 
get on the train or the bus to travel miles away to find support services that embraces them for all of who they are. We, we think that can happen within our community. And I, 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 I work with my staff to make sure it happens on a, a, a significant level. I feel like I can guess the answer to this, but can you describe how the Amat Institute's approach has been so successful? I really think it's about uh, our staff and the peer support of staff. It's the individuals who, I'll go back to it again, uh, lived experience is just as valuable as educational experience. And when we're making staffing decisions, we're definitely hiring from within this community who are able to can really um, uh, touch people um, on that human connection, that peer um, perspective. Clients can see themselves within the, the staff makeup of Ahmad. And I think that goes a long way. We, we do use a, a very um, trauma-informed approach um, and we, we do put, put place a high emphasis on harm reduction, if you will. Um, there are many pathways um, to, to recovery, to many pathways to stability, and we are all hands on deck uh, to get people uh, the support that they need. And uh, we, we take a, 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 we make a big priority to really focus and to work from a whole person approach. So we work within um, kind of care coordination teams. So there's a housing support specialist, there's a mental health therapist, the substance use counselor, and some of our programs are partnered with, partner with legal aid support or employment training specialists, all so that we can surround a client with the supportive services that they need uh, to be as successful on their journey to wellness. Again, I say we are, the, we are an integrated health and wellness organization that is unapologetic about the way in which we do our work. I'm here for it. So in, in that same vein, I always like to ask like this big picture visionary question. And the one that you get so lucky with is how can we transform the healthcare system, right? To ensure that all patients receive equitable and competent treatment. Yeah, I, I think transforming the system means almost flattening the systems. I, I love the concept of um, community health clinics and people uh, getting services within their community uh, and that, that, that whole service support system. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially for um, communities that are especially um, disproportionately impacted. I think it absolutely makes all the difference in the world that, uh, that, uh, that a health system also has in it people with specific lived experience that is absolutely relatable, um, not from an academic only standpoint, but from a lived experience. I need to be able to know that you see me, that you feel me, that you understand what I'm going through, that you can identify this trauma, that I may not speak with my mouth, but you can see it. Um, I, I, I think all of that has to be in place. Um, I always say, when we're talking about HIV specific work within our community, I always say that people don't live their lives when, within some HIV prevention or treatment service silo. Um, people don't, when people are homeless, they don't live their lives within the silo of only being homeless. It, 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 
an integrated approach is so absolutely important. You can't expect someone to adhere to a, a medical regimen that is important to saving their lives if they are homeless. You can't expect someone uh, who, uh, who uh, has a, a, a severe mental health challenge to be adherent to an HIV prevention treatment, uh, excuse me, HIV prevention medication regimen uh, if they have significant mental health untreated uh, 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 diagnosis. So all of it goes together. An integrated approach is important, a community-centered model, I think, is important. So I, I love uh, community health clinics that work from community, that especially engage community in a meaningful way. And so part two of that question, and it would be naive of me to say that stigma doesn't exist within healthcare, because damn it, I know it does. But what can we do to address the stigma then attached with seeking treatment? You know, I, I, I think that, that the system in itself should spend significant resources on peer-based programs that in my view, help de to destigmatize treatment. So again, uh, sometimes it takes people to come within the system to come into contact with people who may look and love like them because they can see themselves in that, in that program or in that service delivery. Um, and thus that stigma can be further destigmatized, if you will. So I, 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 I absolutely think um, uh, peer-based essential support models go a long way, not in terms of not only being able to uh, be able to meet the needs of the clients, you know, from a one-on-one -on -one perspective, but it creates a narrative that makes treatment and support relatable, if you will, to the community. And, and, and so it all starts with the, uh, with the workforce. Um, these treatment support centers that, uh, that are so heavily, heavy, heavy white coat type um, clinical sterile settings, um, community won't see themselves in that and they will steer away from that because of stigma alone. I will say that I think um, as a community, there has been so much um, um, positive language that's been intentional by Black creators who've, who've gone out of their way to talk about mental health and treatment and health services. And, um, but these are absolutely organic things uh, that are happening within the community. Um, but what needs to happen is some funding needs to go to some of these organic um, voices so that they are magnified in a much more uh, significant level. But again, I think that the system has been designed in the way that the authentic voice of community is locked out because they've not done that officially before. Um, and, and, and often they're looking for entities and organizations and institutions and uh, certain professionals who fit a certain cloth um, uh, than to engage population in a way in which they are incapable of doing. It needs to be organic and, 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 and the system 
should be designed in a way that makes sure that these organic grassrootsy community entities are supported in a, in a much more significant way. I've got two follow-ups. You mentioned Black creatives. Who do we need to follow? Because that's always my thing. Like, where, where are the voices that, that I need to be, make sure that I'm hearing? I'm probably going to have to come back to you because I'm <laughs> really horrible with names and remembering and giving people credit. But I'm certain that I, I, I can come back to you with uh, uh, some names and some people who are doing some uh, uh, phenomenal work. But off the top of my head, I, there's a, a few organizations that I, that I put out there. Um, the Black uh, Justice Coalition, um, which is based in DC. Um, in the meantime, Men's Group, which is based here in LA. True Evolution, um, Gabriel Maldonado, who's also based here in Riverside. Um, I would dare say uh, NASM, which is a significant organization based in um, Atlanta. These are uh, solid grassroots organizational entities that get community and they get the, the importance of nuanced engagement across this kind of integrated um, approach. I, I would be remiss if I did not mention Black AIDS Institute and Rania Copeland uh, there. So there, there, there's a host of them, um, but you know, often I, and I feel bad that I start listing people in names without having kind of organized it in my head, but yes. <laughs> I actually, um, I followed, I'm not sure how I found her, but I know she she's connected to a Mod Institute in some way, Vanessa. Vanessa Wary, yes, yes. yes. Yes, and so following Vanessa Wary and seeing some of the things that she posts, I'm just like, why haven't we amplified these voices? Like these are the, the things that you talk about the way we transform the system is we, we create spaces where people's voices are heard and voices like Vanessa clearly stand out. Absolutely, Vanessa, so there was one, uh, there was a project that she was working on with us here in Los Angeles, we called it Black. Uh, Black Lesbian Action Coalition, but it's specific to mental health and Black LGBT community. And we did it in partnership um, with the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. Again, and this is what I mean by um, support not being significant enough. Uh, she helped us with a very kind of small mini grant um, that uh, was a very small project that didn't have teeth and longevity. Um, uh, uh, did a phenomenal job and Ahmad is carrying on in many ways that work, but it's not supported. Um, and, uh, you know, Black professional, Black LGBTQ professionals with this lived experience deserved and should be compensated in a way that is significant and comparable to the work in which they're doing on behalf of the community. And that, re that requires government um, and foundations and funding sources uh, to, to step up to the plate. You know, I, I wish we had a much more stronger kind of fundraising arm, if you will. Um, we, as an organization, we need to do and, uh, and, and to strengthen that. But at the same time, I think that there are systems and uh, things in place that should absolutely already be supporting this kind of work. Um, the work that Vanessa does and others do 
um, especially from the black trans uh, uh, woman uh, perspective, having them at the table and leading the work is so extra, extra, extra important. Um, we've just recently named one of our um, staff members, she just celebrated three years of employment here at Ahmad, um, Nina Barkers, uh, who is now our manager of uh, Black Trans Equity. And the work in which she's going to be leading is really helping us to amplify um, trans and non-binary voices in a way that is much more meaningful um, so that uh, the work is done. And, but I, I still go back to the way we pay for this stuff is not being supported by the system and that's problematic. And I say, we need to shake it up. We need to make some noise. We need to call some people out um, to reform, reshape the way in which uh, work gets supported in community. The second thing I was gonna mention uh, closely tied to that is, is this just the notion of diversity, right? I think about Lansing, Michigan, and when you find a Black doctor, right? Like, oh my God, I found a Black doctor. And then I think about all the other people who have that same experience, and then those people who get cut out of that, because it's like, I know that Black doctor is tired. <laughs> like, there's no way that they can see all of us, but all of us want them. And so I imagine the same thing would be relevant if we're talking about LGBTQ folk who find a doctor who identifies the same way. It was like, oh my God, I, I found a doctor. But then the burden falls on them. It's like, oh my God, there's no way I can treat all the folks, even if I wanted to. And so I think part of it is just the representation. Like we need more people of diverse background and experience to be in these spaces. So root causes get out the way because we got things to do. Absolutely, you know, we were just like, so I, I came huffing and puffing to this room because I, I was in a staff meeting and one of the issues that we were talking about because it's mental health uh, 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 month and all staff kind of was chiming in and we had an exercise of what are we doing for our own mental health? Yes, we are doing mental health um, uh, and providing support services for clients in general but outside of a mod, where are we turning to for our own personal needs and our own, uh, you know, so our, our, our own personal access to um, finding black mental health therapists who understand the nuances of our lives uh, and who can engage us the way in which um, uh, is meaningful. You know, it, it becomes far and uh, and wide in terms of. Uh, uh, what uh, uh, the, the lack is far and wide. Yes, there are lots of people who will say that we're here for you, but they don't get you. They don't understand you. Um, and, uh, and, and then so the few who are there, um, you're right, could easily become overwhelmed. But we were just having that very same conversation about mental health therapists uh, here in Los Angeles. And there are, there are some great ones, absolutely wonderful um, therapists, but the field needs to invest in ensuring that that black therapists are able to have the infrastructure uh, to be able to uh, meet the demand that is clearly here within the community. And that means funding black mental health therapists to be able to do the work and not locking them out of the, 
the, the purported support systems for pay or reimbursement. Something that I don't know much about, but uh, uh, it's, it's just, it, I just find that all too often um, we're locked out of the system. Dr. Hyshaw, anything, Dr. That Bell. <laughs> anything you want to leave the listeners with? I'm, of course, I'm going to ask, how do people keep up with you? But any last thoughts or notes? You know, my, my lasting thoughts are, are, are just for us as people and as a community um, to think about the way in which we engage community in an equitable kind of a way. I love the name of your podcast equity matters. And that's really what we celebrate in the way in which we do our work at Ahmad is, 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 is through this kind of uh, approach that is intended to uh, undo harm that is continuously being perpetuated on. And that means tearing down systems, making noise, pushing back, um, and I think as a community, we need to continue to do that. I think we've done great work uh, uh, with Black Lives Matters over the last year and a half. And I think uh, progressive rounds and, um, and, uh, and visibility and the importance has been, been seen, but I think we need to keep it up. We can't take our foot off of the pedal. We need to make sure that we hold systems um, and uh, accountable. We hold political officials accountable. Um, I'm really in, in inspired by what's happening with the um, new administration. I think there's, there can, there's gonna be some great things that are gonna come about, but let's not just be complacent and think that it's gonna happen. Let's hold people accountable and, um, and push hard. And so as, as folks are pushing and they, they need additional guidance, how do they keep up with you and the Ahmad Institute? So, uh, if you can visit us um, at, at ahmad.org, that's A-M-A-A-D.org. Um, they can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, it's all, the handles are all at Ahmad Institute. Um, I don't know much about <laughs> uh, Instagram and, uh, um, and some of the other platforms, but we have them and we have a communication specialist who's on board who kind of makes sure that, that our voices are heard across those platforms. Um, you, you can uh, feel free to call 323-569-1610 uh, or send an email to info at amod.org. My personal email is carl.amod.org. And you can find any specific staff member um, and their, their staff handles um, on our website, amod.org. The fact that you knew that phone number so well, <laughs> just like I know maybe four phone numbers now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dr. Aisha, I appreciate you and the time. I'm, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing and I really appreciate, like I, I know that you mentioned Mr. Fry in class before, but I don't think I caught the entire narrative and the way that it lines up with the, the history of that area. And to hear that you're even working like blocks away is really exciting because you, you get to remove the shadow that may be casted there and you, you get to shine a new light. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Bell. Keep shining. I'm glad you invited me. Um, looking forward to a uh, wonderful continued season of Equity Matters. You and me both. Certainly want to give a shout out to Dr. Hyshaw. As I mentioned, a, a close friend and classmate who has helped me to, to understand many, many a thing and just grateful for his, his friendship and guidance. This episode was packed with a lot. And so the, the theme started off as addiction in the LGBTQ community, but I feel like we touched on mentorship. We talked about the role history plays and how things continue to show up over and over and over again. And so as you're listening to the episode, I, I hope that you picked up on some of those themes and the, the others as well. I don't have much um, for our post episode wrap up. What I will say is the Equity Matters Social Justice Academy links are now live. So if you're following us on Twitter, that's at Equity Matters PC or on Instagram at Equity Matters Podcast, the links are in our bio. Sign up, sign up for our listserv to stay in the know. Right now, I am contemplating if I want to do a second set of courses. Um, the The first round, I believe, has gone very well, and people have been very receptive. I've got a few ideas in mind that I think I could stretch out as a, as a follow-up, but we'll see how that goes. Also, really excited that very soon I'll be able to announce the new partnership that we have set up with a an institution all about behavioral health. And so I will have more on that in the new year and just really excited for the things to come. So as folks are taking time off, if you're listening to this, thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate you all for rocking with me. And of course, equity matters.